We often imagine a cell as a large balloon filled with jelly, but really, it is more like a large city. Packages need to go from one place to the other in an organized fashion as to not disrupt other processes. For example, when we need an item, we go to the store or click away on retail websites, but how do these items find their way to the retail place or to our house? There are vehicles on roads and highways that are utilized for distribution. Much like the infrastructure that we use every day to move cargo around our cities, the cell has its own system to deliver goods from one place to another. What are the 18-wheelers of the cell? How do they move such important packages? And how do they know where to go? Cytoplasmic dynein is a protein complex that transports molecular cargo along and plays a key role in the intracellular trafficking network. Dr. Danielle Grochon utilizes specialized imaging techniques to study these structures and the functions of motor proteins. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I am Sininta Pratiwi. And I'm Morgan Quayle. We are joined here today by Dr. Danielle Grochan, a researcher at the Scripps Research Institute. Thanks again for coming out to UC Merced. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been a great day. Okay, so let's start with who are you and how would you describe what you do? What I do for my research is I'm a structural biologist. So I like to look at the structure and the shape of proteins to understand how they work. And uh, right now, I am gearing up to lead my own independent research lab as a research fellow. So how did you get in the field? How did you start? Yeah, so I've always been very much a visual learner. And so to me, it made sense to approach biology from a visual standpoint. And so I started off uh, my undergrad research doing light microscopy, where you can look at very specific proteins inside of cells. And that's really where I fell in love with microscopy in general. And then for graduate school, I knew I wanted to take it a step further. And I had just heard about this up-and-coming technique, cryo-electron microscopy. And I heard that Scripps uh, research was a great place to do it. So that was ultimately my decision for why I went to grad school there and why I'm continuing to pursue a career in that field. You say you, you try to see what you know, biological or cellular components look like. Mm-hmm. What are the techniques out there that, that are commonly used to do that? Yeah, so typically the, the main structural biology techniques that really dominated the field were X-ray crystallography and, and NMR as well. And so these are really useful techniques and actually are still very useful. And all of these kind of feed off of one another. And then electron microscopy was useful for looking at I would say, more heterogeneous samples, maybe more flexible samples. And so what really, in the last few years, though, there's been, for cryo-electron microscopy, there's been what we refer to as the the resolution revolution for cryo-EM. Here, Dr. Grochon mentions multiple different structural imaging techniques. First, she mentions X-ray crystallography. This technique attains high-resolution structures of proteins and changes the structural biology field by enabling scientists to look at individual amino acid residues and how they may affect the overall protein structure. Another technique is NMR, which is the acronym for Nuclear Magnetic Resonance. 
NMR is often used to resolve small molecular structures in three dimensions or larger molecular structures in two dimensions. Dr. Grochan uses a different technique called cryo-electron microscopy, also known as cryo-EM, to resolve large protein structures in three dimensions. Cryo-EM was kind of regarded for a long time as just being this technique that basically you produce blobs. Especially they look like blobs relative to structures that are solved by x-ray crystallography. But then we had uh, substantial technological advancements in both our microscopes, our cameras, as well as our, our computational resources and data processing algorithms. And that's when CryoEM really had this upswing in their ability to get to high resolution. And so for me, that was sort of this wave that CryoEM was experiencing. But I see in the distance a second wave that's coming. And the second wave I see is this cellular structural biology determination. And so this is using cryo-electron microscopy, a different flavor called tomography, where we can actually look inside of cells. And although it's not able to achieve as high of resolution currently or as routinely as single particle EM, it has this advantage in that you can really, the physiological relevance of, of how you can look at protein structure is unprecedented. So I'm really looking to position myself as a young researcher that's sort of going to catch this next wave of technological development for cellular structural biology. So we can start doing things that instead of stringently purifying protein complexes, solving their structure, and then trying to understand what they do in the cell, we can just look at them in their cellular context with all of their different neighbors and then have a better idea of how they function. And so that's sort of how I see the structural biology continuum going on. So on, on the importance of resolution, mm -hmm. um, how do you take these images? Like why is it a better resolution? So for single particle EM, the increase in resolution came from many different factors. It was sort of the perfect culmination. So our microscopes became more automated. My PhD advisor, Gabe Lander used to tell stories of how he would stay overnight and you used to have to sort of monitor things and do it a lot more manually. And, and effectively, I mean, you can, you can push yourself to do that, but if you can automate things, you can effectively generate more data more easily. So having more data for structure is usually, for the most part, better for high-resolution structure determination. So there's better microscopes. Then there was also the cameras we were using. Uh, we have now direct ways that we can image structures to get more clear images than we could before, which, again, affects our ability to get to higher resolution. And then on top of that, everything is very computational heavy. And so, I mean, maybe you guys have seen the, the images of like the first IBM computers that filled an entire room. And now, of course, we have everything on a, on a phone, essentially. And so it's kind of a similar idea that we're able now to buy much quicker processing, uh, computational processing resources are much cheaper and much faster. So that allows us to collect a lot more data in a more efficient manner, have better quality data, and then be able to process all of that 
data in a more efficient manner. So that really all contributed in general to this increase in resolution. And then from a cellular point of view, the new technologies that we're using are actually, a lot of them are borrowed from material scientists. And so a lot of the techniques that material scientists used to look at different materials, we're now repurposing to look at biological material. And so we're kind of adapting a lot of the existing technology, but for a biological purpose. And so that's where, in that, in that sense, being able to visualize in the interior of a cell is really benefiting, again, from a new wave of technology. So what are you visualizing? Yeah, so, well, for my graduate project, I visualized this protein complex called dynein. And you can sort of think of it like the, the train system for a cell. So its job is to basically transport energy and different molecules that, that allow the cell to function. So cells are very dynamic, and they have lots of requirements. And so intracellular transport is the process by which different molecules or proteins can be actively moved, or as the term implies, transported to different regions within the cell. And so everything is on a very different scale. So we're talking about microscopic scale, but we have lots of dynamics going on between them. And so the transport itself is the process by which these motor proteins, uh, kinesins and dynein, the, the motor protein I studied, essentially latch on to what we call cargo, which is something, for example, that produces energy for the cell or provides nutrients. It, it latches onto these cargo and it transports them along these tracks we have in our cells that are called microtubules. And, and essentially, the, the metaphor of a train on a train track with a cargo, you can think of that, or you can think of like our highway system with a big a semi on the, on the highway. All those metaphors are spot on if you, you can make that sort of comparison here. So just like we need, you know, trains to transport different goods, different food throughout our country, it's the cell needs essentially the same thing. And so the motor proteins that I study carry out that important function. Perhaps you could give us an example using your graduate study, which is using cryo-EM tomography to kind of look at these little trains inside the cells. Yeah. So what did you find out and how did you do it? Ah, yeah. So there was this big question in the dynein motor protein field, which was how exactly does dynein move? How does it transport? How does it essentially do its function? We knew a lot about different parts of how it worked, but the, the bigger picture of how it actually did its basic function was unknown. And so using these latest advancements in cryo-electron microscopy, we basically were able to visualize for the first time its complete three-dimensional architecture. And from this, uh, we made a, a fundamental discovery that there was this helper that helps dynein function. And we knew it helped dynein function, but we didn't know what it was doing. But now we know that it, this helper, dynactin, actually recruits a team of these dynein molecules. So it recruits two of them, and that together this team works to, to transport different 
cellular factors. So these, like I mentioned, these proteins are sort of like the train, the train system for our cell. And, and why this is important is because they're particularly important for neurons. And if you think, for example, your sciatic nerve basically starts at the base of your back and then goes all the way down to the tip of your toe. So that's up to a meter long, that a single cell is basically that length. But most of the, the components that the cell needs are made essentially at the place that's at the base of your back, and they need to be transported all the way down, up to a meter in length. And so these proteins are very important for uh, performing that transport function. And when you have disruptions in dynein motor proteins or kinesin motor proteins, essentially it can lead to downstream neurodegeneration because essentially your cell is not able to uh, get the nutrients and the energy and the components it needs to survive. And then so it starts to essentially die back. And there are specific neurodegenerative diseases that have uh, mutations in these different components, but just as a general mechanism, it's, it's becoming more apparent that when you disrupt this transport process, it really seems to form these what we call traffic jams in the cell, where essentially things can't get transported and then you have these blockages. And that can, it, current models uh, think that that is really what leads ultimately to neurodegeneration. So again, by understanding how they function and how they perform their transport process, we're hoping to be able to come up with eventually possibly therapeutic approaches that we can use this research to inform us on how to better treat some of these neurological diseases. You are trying to see what this protein looks like. How do you capture that image with a microscope? How does it, how does it work? So the way in which uh, for cryo-electron microscopy, so if I can actually use the term itself to try to explain it, so breaking it into parts. So cryo, what does cryo mean? Cryo is a fancy way of saying cold or frozen, and that's what describes the method we use to preserve our proteins. So essentially, in order to image them later, we need to preserve them in a state that what we call native. So we're trying to preserve it in a state that is most like what it would be when it's functioning in a cell. So that's the cryo portion. Then for electrons, that is the form of radiation we use to actually visualize protein components. And so instead of using photons or light that we use for fluorescence microscopy, we use electrons. And essentially, they allow us to look at the fine details of structure. And then microscopy is meaning that we use a microscope. In a microscope, every microscope, the basic components are you have a radiation source, so in our case, it's electrons. And then you have a series of lenses. So in light microscopy, this is, if you think of your glasses, this, these are glass lenses. For electron microscopy, we use magnetic lenses. And you're essentially focusing your electrons. And then you focus them, and then you can image your sample on a detector or a camera. And so basically, the overall process is that we freeze our samples to keep them in a native state, 
we put them in an electron microscope and then we shoot electrons at them and, and collect an image. But the real trick for a structure is that you want to take two-dimensional images and convert them into a three-dimensional object. Kind of like if you think of a hologram, which is projecting a three-dimensional, like from Star Wars or something. So you can imagine that we want to produce that three-dimensional structure. And so that's where the computation comes in. And so we heavily rely on advanced computational algorithms at the end to take our two-dimensional images and, and make what we call a three-dimensional structure. And because life is in three dimensions, it's not in two dimensions. And so uh, we really want to recapitulate what's going on with proteins in 3D. So ultimately, that's, that's our entire process. What are some misconceptions about your field? Well, I guess cryo-EM, cryo-electron microscopy, is a very at this point, a very highly specialized technique. It takes a long time. I call it, you you have to climb the mountain of training even to be able to collect any sort of data, let alone good data, that's going to lead to some sort of publication. And so I think maybe the misconception, particularly with a lot of these high-resolution structures, is that any sort of sample is going to be very straightforward, and after a few weeks, you're going to have a high-resolution structure. But that's not really the case. While we're getting there, things are becoming more automated, and it is becoming more routine to solve structures to high resolution with cryo-EM. It's still, it's not a sure thing that every everything that you're interested in looking at is going to get there. And so I think the advantage is we, we promote it as it's this high-resolution technique and everything is automated, but the reality is is that there still is a lot of steps that can go wrong, and it still, in general, takes a lot of training and a lot of time and a lot of optimization before you get the final result. And so I would say that would probably be the biggest misconception currently. And then for cellular tomography, I think right now the throughput, how quickly we can generate data is even slower than that. So when you see some of this very cool results, uh, what you're not seeing are the, the hours and hours of work that went into to generate that. Yeah, I think it has a lot of promise, and as microscopists, we like to promote how exciting it is. But again, I like to also promote that it really is uh, highly specialized, and, and it requires a, a, bit, a lot of effort, and not everything is straightforward. So <laughs> so when I was a kid, I used to watch The Magic School Bus. Yeah. <laughs> and when I see you describe this, I imagine that you're imagining yourself in these cells. Yeah. <laughs> if you were on The Magic School Bus and you landed inside the cell, can you describe what you would see, this architecture that oh, you're talking about? yeah. Because most people think of it as this like jelly, gelatinous thing, but the way you're describing it, it sounds almost like scaffolding to a building. Oh, yeah. It's, cells are fascinating when you can actually look inside them. So it's really almost like a dynamic city. You can think of, if you look at sort of an aerial view of New York City, right? You can see you have the roads where things are, are being transported. That's sort of this intracellular transport process. You have different regions where things are, people are interacting with one another. Um, those are the way molecules are interacting with one another in our cell. And so 
we sort of think of these cartoon diagrams of the cell, and, and they sort of are very simplistic, but really it's a very crowded, congested environment. But that's what I think is so cool, that even though seemingly there's, there's a lot of things going on, it all somehow just works. So everything kind of is mindful of everything else and is either contained or compartmentalized. And together, it's very elegant how all of these different processes can occur. And there's different checkpoints that if something goes wrong, something can compensate. But in general, as a, as a unit, all of these dynamic processes are what contribute to the overall function. And so I would love to go inside of a cell as the magic school bus. <laughs> and I think I would just be, it would be kind of like landing in a big city for the first time and just being in awe of everything that's going on around you and almost too many things going on at once to process. But somehow it all works. <laughs> I guess in this case, it would be what's going on around inside us. Yeah. <laughs> seeing the sound. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Actually, while we were setting up, you called yourself a millennial scientist. Um, as a young scientist, I'd like to know a little bit what you mean by that, and what is a day in a life of a young scientist? Yeah, that's a good question. So I sort of, I definitely identify as a millennial, <laughs> but I like to think of myself as a millennial that I remember the time before the internet. <laughs> the next two of us. Yeah. Three. <laughs> yeah, so I, I do remember that time before, um, and I take a lot of pride in that. But I think, you know, you kind of, you. I am also a product of, you know, growing up with social media and Facebook. And what I've found is actually... I wasn't really on Twitter until my first publication came out. And my advisor, Gabe Lander, basically said it's a great way to sort of self-promote, as social media is. But I thought, you know, I don't, I didn't really know who to follow on Twitter. So I just started to follow different scientific journals. I started to follow different researchers in my field. And I quickly learned, especially with the cryo-EM field, how much researchers were using it as a platform to promote science and also to discuss issues that, you know, regarding data processing that really you don't have in any other form. And so for me, Twitter, I would say, is my most millennial uh, scientific, I guess, platform. But then also using things like messaging services like Slack. Our lab uses this as an alternative to email. This is really helpful for us because we work on microscopes that always have issues. And so being able to Slack other members, you know, even if it's late at night to get help is, is really useful. So I think those are sort of how I'm mostly a millennial <laughs> in that sense. So, so a little bit of keeping up with literature, but also just the, the rapid communication that these apps provide. So not all our viewers got to go to your talk, but one of my favorite yeah. points that you made about being a millennial in science was um, logging your day. Mm. So I was really interested in that. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about how you log your day and like share yeah. with your friends and family? Because a lot of times they think of us as just sitting at a bench pipetting all day. Yes. But it was really cool. How did you log that? Yeah. So I, I forgot to mention, that's the other platform uh, is Snapchat. So I decided to do that because, well, actually partly was because not necessarily for my non-scientific friends and family, but also for my other grad student friends. We do very different things. And, you know, you spend so much of your time in lab sort of doing the same thing over and over. And, and you kind of lose 
how cool it is really that you get to wake up every day and you get to work, you know, on very fancy equipment. And so I thought, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make a Snapchat story of basically my entire day. And that way that people can look at it and have a little bit of a glimpse. And maybe there are things there that I wouldn't think to tell them about. But if I'm actually real time showing, like, sharing this experience with them, uh, they'll have a better idea. And it over it went over pretty well. Um, <laughs> I think in general, you know, people started to kind of do the same. And, and, and so that was fun to also see uh, what their day was like as well. What is the favorite part of your day? Ooh. Like what wakes you up every morning to do this? Well, I quite enjoy the part after we've collected our data and after I can sit there and I can spend the time with my coffee <laughs> going through and and just looking at the pictures and the three-dimensional structures I've generated. I really like the the analysis part where then I can I can look at what we're imaging and then I can go back and I can read what other groups have done and try to fit our structure into the bigger picture of what it means for biology. And so for me, the days I'm most excited to go to work are when I can really have that freedom to, to really think creatively and to interpret what our structures mean from a functional point of view. And then on top of that, I quite enjoy interacting with my lab mates. <laughs> That's another part of my day. I mean, I think a lot of my job is spent at a computer or at a microscope, which can be quite isolating. But it's very exciting when you can go to lab meeting and you can see what people have been doing. You can bounce off ideas. I would say that's, that's another important or exciting part of my day. So one of the things that you would like to do is, you know, start your own lab yeah. and take cryo-EM to the next level. Yes. So how would you start? So as I mentioned, I really like the analysis part. And so as I think I've described, there's a lot of different steps you have to take before you're at that part. And I, I do like all of the upstream. I like working on the microscope. I like doing all that. But I think if I, when I have my own lab... I'd like to hire people who can essentially work at that part that are very, very skilled and very trained at collecting the images, processing the images, and then very much like to then uh, talk with them about what we think our interpretation is and what we think we can do for the next step to understand these, how these proteins function. And so I think, yeah, a lot of it is just assembling a team that has a common goal and has as much excitement about imaging cells as I do, because there's nothing better than when someone's equally as excited and you're talking about ideas and, and next steps. And so I really look forward to that part. And I also look forward to mentoring future trainees. I like to have sort of an approach. I remember as a student going to scientific talks and everything just seems to work out for <laughs> researchers. You know, they tell this beautiful story and everything works and they made all these discoveries. But, you know, having gone through it and, and having seen others, that's not really how it is. A lot of science is... Is, is failures in the sense of it takes a long time to get things working properly, or even if they're working, you don't know how to interpret it. And so I tend to have, I like to give styles of talks where I, I give more of an accurate picture of, I guess, 
the struggle. <laughs> because I think that's very important. I think it's important to sort of inspire the next generation of scientists that, look, it can be very exciting and it's very rewarding, but there's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of failure that goes into it. And so, yeah, I'm excited to have a group of trainees that we can be very excited, but also I can motivate them maybe during the dark times when their things aren't working so well, but also celebrate the very exciting times that inspire us all to continue with science. Most people just think of us as like, we sit there and we pipette and we walk away smiling. It's like, no, there are days... In the trenches. Yes, there are definitely days in the trenches, and there's lots of things that help with that. Having a great mentor that supports you, having a great lab environment, but also, you know, it's those little victories. It's those, there's not those eureka moments in science. There are, but it comes from a lot of smaller victories that lead up to it. And so I think for me, trying to be positive, and another approach I take is whenever I'm sort of getting frustrated with something or or feeling a little bit overwhelmed, I think to myself, Danielle, your job is to wake up every day and write and think about science. I mean, that is, to me, very cool. Not, Not everyone has the privilege of doing that. And so I think in that sense, I get to be very creative. And I I do feel very fortunate. And that being positive about why you're there kind of helps you through those struggles where you're wrapped up in a blanket and comforted by snacks. So, (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Yumari Vasquez. The interviewers were Sinanta Pratiwi and Morgan Quayle. The episode was edited by Yumari Vasquez and Sinanta Pratiwi with artwork by Morgan Quayle. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.